Hello and welcome to Enlightened Empaths, your community for the spiritually awakened. Today we're going to be talking about alchemy, but not in the traditional sense of turning lead into gold. We're talking about an inner alchemical healing of your soul. Denise, would you like to introduce our guest? I would love to. We're very honored and grateful that Lori Eve Deshar came on is coming on the show with us today. Lori is an acupuncturist, consciousness explorer, and change maker, committed to bringing the art of alchemy and soul healing back to the modern world. She's practiced Chinese medicine for over three decades and is the author of Five Spirits, Alchemical Acupuncture for Psychological and Spiritual Healing, Kiko, Exploring the Spiritual Essence of Acupuncture Points Through the Changing Seasons, and her most recently published book, the Alchemy of Inner Work, a guide for turning illness and suffering into the true health and well-being. With her husband, astrologer, and community builder, Benjamin Fox, she co-founded A New Possibility, a global healing and learning community committed to the belief that inner work is the prerequisite to any lasting outer change. Thank you so very much for coming on with us today, Lori. Well, thank you, Denise and Samantha. It's a pleasure to chat with you and get to know you both. Well, our community of our empaths, basically, and I think one of the, the key points of your book, and it's, it's, by the way, beautiful, beautiful written, and I agree, well, before we come on air, Samantha had mentioned that, you know, it's one of those books that you go back to and back to and back to, and you can open to a page and find what your soul needs to hear. But could you briefly explain alchemy for our listeners and, and why it's so important? I think right now we're all in this transition, not only on a personal, but a collective level. And the concept of alchemy is so vital to that. Yes, I so agree. Every day I, I, I am feeling more and more clear that Gaia, our, our beautiful, beloved planet, is undergoing a massive shift, a kind of initiation. And we're, you know, individually, but also collectively, not just as humans, but as all beings on this amazing miracle of a planet, are, we're all undergoing that initiation with her. And, you know, I would say that's been my belief for a long time, but once the quarantine began and we all began processing through this pandemic, each day it gets clearer and clearer to me that we can no longer think about problems, approach problems, approach our health from the same old way. That's so true. So alchemy is, a, is in short, the art of transformation. It's the study the art, the science of transformational process. It was the way we could say in the past that human beings studied, understood, um, sort of synthesized their impressions of the outer and inner world between the time of shamanism which is the Neolithic hunter-gatherer period between that time of indigenous medicines and what we would call modern Western medicine and philosophy around the Renaissance. Although alchemy has 
extended well into the 1700s and is still alive today. But it's a very specific way. It has principles, it has guidelines, it has assumptions that are very particular to its own worldview. I would say the key for me and why I have so I've been so committed to bringing alchemy forward as a as a very important viable way of looking at the world is that the alchemists don't they never separated spirit and matter in their explorations and their focus was and is on the soul level that intermediary non-physical and yet not quite spiritual domain of the soul as the messenger, as the place where we encounter the divine. That so that beautiful encapsulation. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. It's, you know, there's so much more, but I try to like, just, that's the key. It's like alchemy is the art of transformation and it's locus is our soul level of life. And they have, and there's so much in that way of being that complements, that supports us in moving through this time of radical, radical transformation. You write about reading an article early in the book that discussed how suicide and opioid rates are up across the country. And at the same time, you read this report by Nicholas Kristof showing that humanity is better off now than any time in history. Do you think this could be connected to the great divorce of the yin and yang you talk about, that separation of the soul and matter? I, I, that, well, that was an article um, by Nicholas Kristof in the Times, and it was a number of years ago. I have a feeling that he would be writing something different today. <laughs> but at the time, you know, he was giving metrics about, um, you know, life expectancy. Uh, he said, you know, people are living longer, this sort of mean um, quality of life in terms of hunger, in terms of, he even spoke about, uh, reduction of certain kinds of uh, public health problems. And, and he was looking at the numbers worldwide and he presented that argument, which on one level, I think had a lot of validity to it. And it was an important one to remember, like we're thinking things are really bad, but look at the big picture. Uh, but I think that what we were trying to bring forward in the book is that the metrics and numbers of, say, for example, life expectancy, um, even survival, birth survival rates, these different numbers are one thing. But then we look at the numbers from another perspective of what's happening in advanced, modern, so-called Western life and uh, we see a very different picture that there is high high levels of addiction suicide among young people unbelievable numbers when we look at who's taking antidepressants and what does that tell us uh, about the soul which may not be as easily quantified 
you know, this idea of are people feeling connected to their own purpose, we could say their own inner divinity. Um, how are we living into community ritual that sustains us and gives us a sense of belonging and meaning? And I do think, I, I think it was um, you, Denise, who, who brought that up. Does, does this relate to the idea of this separation between spirit and matter and our lack of connection to the soul? And I think Benjamin and I would say emphatically, that is our belief. That's really interesting because one of the things you mentioned in your book is building a connection between imagination and that soul knowing. Mm -hmm. And I love, love, love that because, you know, talking with a lot of people and this is, I think a lot of the unrest in the world is because people are also connecting with their own soul knowing and they're, you know, people are saying they're waking up or there's an awakening or this transition, however we want to label it. But the people's awareness is rising, that self-awareness, that sense of self. And I think so many, as that's happening, may doubt or double guess, Am I? is this really me? Am I making this up in my head? How do I know that I'm on the right track? Could you address that a little bit about that connection between imagination and soul knowing, please? Oh, so good. <laughs> so good. First of all, I... Yes, I so agree with you that there is, at the same time, there's this coming apart of a lot of how we've held the world, even questioning where do we find the truth, who do we believe, um, what do we actually know about, quote unquote, the facts of what's happening on the planet right now, right down to the idea of, you know, do we, is there climate change, you know, what is this virus? What, how do I take care of my body now? Um, you know, fundamental questions about where to discover the quote unquote truth. At the same time, there is this upsurging of a new kind of awareness. And it's a, I think it's an awareness that's going way beyond the kind of linear rational dualism that has dominated for the past you know, we could say three, four centuries. That way of being really is breaking down. But then, of course, there is this feeling of like, well, what, what are these new knowings that are emerging in me? And what are these new desires to connect in a more, uh, you know, we could say a more intertwined way with other beings and other ways of knowing? Um, so for how the alchemists looked at this, you know, where their position was is that, first of all, and it's the very first principle of what's called the Emerald Tablet, the original text of European alchemy. And it's an ancient text. It's said to be 3,000 years old, but it's probably more like 1,000 years old piece of writing that sort of gathers up the principles. And the first line, it says, as above, so below. And then it says, find the truth from within your own being. And what they're saying is that, you know, we have within us this speck, as above, so below. I have in me starlight. I have in me these heavenly kinds of 
cosmic um, energies and I can go into my own being and discover those truths for myself. And that's, that is the fundamental principle of alchemy that it's not a, it's not a guru type of practice. It's not like someone else is going to tell me we rather can support each other in these processes of self-discovery. And then they say, imagination is the star within us. So oh, in alchemy, that. the imagination is not just, oh, you know, that's your fantasy. The imagination is something that is endowed to us from the stars that we can, we have this faculty to actually create new possibilities. Yeah, I love you right in your book that imagination refers to the real and literal human power to craft images and create symbols. <laughs> so you talk about how, and it's also connected to the root magus of magic. So it's almost as though you're, I felt that you were saying imagination is not fantasy. It is not this mythical thing we make up that there is a reality to what we can image, what we can imagine and we can use it to create our outer reality as well. Did I interpret that correctly? Exactly, exactly. It is a part, but you know, the efficient use of this faculty and that is in large part why we in the book include you know, exercises and practices because yes, imagination can devolve into a kind of passive, daydreaming or even we could say imaginings or fantasies that become almost addictive and are not creative in that sense. So we have to learn to use this, uh, which we believe is a divinely gifted faculty to, and you quote from the book, to craft and create images and symbols that ultimately can affect how the outer world appears and, and incarnates. I mean, that is, of course, a very radical idea in the West, but it's, it's an ancient one. And in fact, in Chinese medicine, they, there's, a, there's a soul, an individual soul component called the Hun, the Hun soul, um, and I talk about this at length in Five Spirits, where I talk about these different soul bodies, which are like the chakra system of, of Taoism in China. There's a particular soul body called the Hun, who is in charge of the imagination. And the Hun is said to be able to, it's a messenger soul, goes up to the stars and brings these messages down to us in the form of dream images active imagination, skillful use of our, our image-making capacities. So we need to take care of this part of our soul. And we talk about that. I talk about that a lot in my first book, Five Spirits, but also in um, The Alchemy of Inner Work, how to nourish the imagination and nourish this aspect of our being. Let's Beautiful. And, and I agree with you 100% that it's the inner work that 
health is foster the outer change. And I think as a collective, we're all working towards this global unity. I believe that in my heart to be true. And part of it is we need to do that internal work in order to be able to reach that place of, of communion and unity as a global species. And, and also I love what you said earlier about, it's not just us as humans, it's, it's hmm. mother earth, it's the animals, it's the elementals, it's everything. Everything is in this transformation right now. Um, but could you, there's an exercise, it's a little quick exercise you discuss in your book about practicing the pause. And I think that would help our listeners so much as kind of a, a redirect when you're overwhelmed a little bit. Could you explain that a bit, please? Yeah. So the pause, and I love that you sort of honed in on that one practice, because if there's one practice in all the work we do that I feel it begins the transformation process or supports us within it, it's that one, the pause. I guess I'll, I'll begin by saying in, again, coming back to a Taoist viewpoint, this Chinese, ancient Chinese viewpoint, what the, the Chinese, the ancient Chinese sages would say is that we need to make a space and they would even talk about emptying out the heart, emptying of thought, of, of anxieties. We make a space and that space or that emptiness is where the, the spirit can come down into our being. And the great sage Lao Tzu said, it's the, um, it's the emptiness at the center of the bowl that makes the bowl useful. It's the hollow at the center of the wheel that allows the wheel to turn. The axle fits into that emptiness. So there, he's speaking to the great importance and value of that making that empty space, which is kind of the antithesis of, of <laughs> Western philosophy, right? Because it's like, if you're not doing and filling and, and you know, accumulating, then what are, what are you doing? But the Chinese, of course, they, they understood in, in ancient times the, that that empty space, that momentary silence, that quieting, is what allows us to hear, you know, the whisperings and even the loud man mandates of spirit that we can get at what is greater than the ego or the will. So that's behind some of the emphasis that I put on the pause practice, that we, we shift our ideas to really seeing that those moments where we do nothing Again, in Chinese, it's called Wu Wei, doing by not doing. Those are key moments in an alchemical or transformational process. It's not like you're procrastinating or not, you know, wasting time. You're actually actively listening and waiting. So the pause, um, that's from that perspective. It also can be, you can look at it from the perspective of even Western neuroscience that when we bring the prefrontal medial cortex to bear on the reptilian brain and just say, 
don't just react. You know, let me hover over the situation rather than just going into survival reactive mode. We're actually resetting our entire nervous system. So however you want to look at this, this is the key practice. Um, and it is also the beginning of an alchemical process. It's a reversal of my awareness, looking within. So the pause is so simple, and it's probably the hardest thing any of us are ever going to be able to do. So I have to use an acronym for it because it, it helps when you're in that moment, you're about to push the send button on an email that you should never send. <laughs> or, you know, you're about to say that one thing that you know is going to just inflame your kid or your partner or your friend, you know, but you're like, I'm going to say, it, I'm going to say, it. I, you know, and it's like the pause. It's like, okay, maybe I just wait to see if three times I'm, you know, really want to say this or send this or do this. So the pause, I use the acronym R S. V P. <laughs> you know, it's like that French, you know, respond, still play, please respond. But in this case, it's like, please don't respond <laughs> for a moment. <laughs> so the R is like recognize that you're about to do, you know, react from the reptilian survival mode, like your autonomic uh, habitual response. Recognize that. And then S is simply stop, simply stop. Take a breath, you know, the V and here's, I kind of fudge this a little, it's reverse. The V is reverse your awareness and notice how you are actually doing inside. Just notice. You know, is my chest tight? Is my back tight? Am I like all tensed up in my jaw? And just say hello to all that. It's not even, you don't even have to do anything. Reversing awareness begins a shift. It's activating those prefrontal lobes of the cortex, you know, that allow us to hover over, get a bigger view of the situation. In, you know, I in the you know, book, I say, like, put your hand on the animal, calm the animal down with this reversal. And then the P is presence. It's like, as you notice, you don't have to do, fix, simply be present and give yourself a moment to see what else might be possible. And that's when spirit can come in and give us that little bit of insight or guidance. It's, I mean, it's such a simple thing and yet it can be so miraculous. You know, if, if you're still activated, you just do it again. Notice, simply stop, take three breaths, reverse awareness, notice what's going on and be present and listen. You know, that can help with our inner alchemy, but it can also help with setting boundaries. Years ago, when my kids were little, I was constantly being asked to do stuff in school and help with this and bring cupcakes for that. And my friend said, I'm going to teach you a phrase, Samantha, that I want you to memorize. I said, OK, what is it? And she said, let me think about that. <laughs> and now I use that for everything. Someone asked me to do something. I just say, let me think about that and I'll get back to you. 
it's magical because you're not saying yes and you're not saying no, but you're asking that person to honor your power of the pause. And you're reminding yourself that you have the right to pause and think, do I really want to do this? Or can I really do this? Because sometimes we want to do all the things that are being offered to us, but we can't physically, mentally, or spiritually. Absolutely. I love that. Thank you. I'm going to keep that one. Let me think about that. It it kind of fits right into the reverse step, right? Where you're just like saying, okay, let me go in here. Right. Exactly. And notice what's really, again, true for me, find the truth from within. And, you know, without that pause and without that little bit of space, it's, we can't hear that voice within. No. And I think there are times in our lives, at least for me, where I don't want to hear that voice within. When I get so amped up and and stressed and I've got to fix this and I've got to make this better and I've got to do this, I will block out that voice on purpose. And I know I'm doing it and I have to almost force myself to go within and practice that pause. I think that's such a perfect way of expressing also what I see happening so much right now, politically, culturally, you know, in the domain of healthcare. Everyone's sort of rushing to, how do we fix this? Or I have to fix it right now, as opposed to a little bit, I mean, I think what the quarantine and some of the limitations have invited or are inviting is a bit of a pause, a bit. And again, for those of us, I know some people haven't been able to, and there are people who the conditions of this situation are so dire and so really terribly limiting, constraining, you know, there's no, no possibility there. But for those of us who have a little bit of space, there is an invitation now. And I think it is what the planet may be asking of us is to look at how have I been living? Have I been pushing or rushing or moving at a pace that may not have been quite true for me? And that doesn't mean being actively, you know, that doesn't mean I'm not actively engaged and and in my creativity, but there is a sense of a, calling for slightly different, or I would say radically different uh, approach to reality. Well, you know, you talk a lot about how this is inner work and it's work we have to do for ourselves. But you also talk about how this isn't work we have to do alone. Um, There's a quote I wrote down where you write, witnessing is what welcomes spirit back to matter and transforms lead into gold. Can you talk about that part where we're ready to have someone witness what we're going through in terms of our inner alchemy and how important that is? Yeah. So two things in response to that, just to come back to what in the introduction um, you mentioned that we're not looking at the old idea of the alchemist as this sort of failed chemist who was trying to transform a chunk of lead into gold you know, that led into gold. While there were outer alchemists who were working with materials and may or may not have ever succeeded in 
transforming a little bit of lead or a big chunk of lead into a tiny bit of gold. It was mostly metaphorical in the sense of an inner transformation of my being, you know, the ordinary kind of reactivities of, of being human into a more illuminated kind of response to the world where I bring compassion and wisdom and love and acceptance and meaning to my life. Those are the qualities, you know, that we're looking to, uh, to cultivate. And so the, so that, that process, one of the things that supports it is relationality. And when we talk about relationality in the book or relationality as an aspect of alchemy, we're talking about a relationality to the inner self. So that's when we were talking about the pause practice and looking within and making a space, you know, relationality to my own inner divinity and what it's asking of me, but also relationality to all the, these beings that the alchemists, when they worked with a, say a bit of mercury or a, or a, or, or a leaf or a, what they would find a crystal, they, they saw these quote unquote things as beings with intelligence. And you can read these old writings of alchemists talking to what they call their metal. And all these metals had voices and wisdom for them. So as we are looking to bring an alchemical awareness into our lives, we're looking at an awareness that, that goes out into the world and sees the world as filled with intelligence and information for me. You know, as I'm looking at the tree, the tree is also witnessing me. And then taking that further to, I think where you're going here um, is this idea that we can't do this work alone. It's not meant to be done alone. Transformation is a rigorous, it's a, there are times in a transformational process that I feel I'm coming apart. And last week I just took a descent, you know, in looking at where some of healthcare is going now and some of the questions that people are being forced to look at. And, you know, how are we taking care of our children at this time? And I just was feeling so much despair and I needed to just go way down. And, and having Benjamin be able to sit with me as I did that descent and cried and felt the grief, not fixing it, but simply being present to it allowed me to actually discover, um, you know, a whole new attitude, particularly a, a, an affirmation again of the importance of this inner work that we're doing, that it actually, as we do the inner work, it adds a kind of quantum packet of energy and life and goodness to the entire planet. So, that witnessing or being witnessed, being heard without, you know, trying to be fixed is a key piece of how we look at alchemical process, particularly 
that now we need alchemical communities. It's not enough for, it is important for each of us to do our inner work, but we also need to be in community. Otherwise it's extremely difficult to continue. And that's one of the reasons why we began what we call the inner healing circle, which is a community of alchemical healing practitioners and people who are entering into this work. It's a, it's a growing community of people who are engaged in the search, but also really wanting to support others in activating this part of their awareness. And people can find out about that on our website, newpossibility.com. But we're, it's really about this idea that that tribe and community is so important now as we begin to give birth to a new consciousness and a w new way of being human, that we can't do this work alone. We need to be witnessed and supported by others. And that truly, truly feels like the direction and the answer to try and heal the duality and the polarity that, that the division that is keeping people from accessing their inner knowing or staying in that agitated state. And uh, thank you, thank you for describing your community and sharing that because I think that's a wonderful, and that's a, an online, um, or is it, uh, is it virtual so anyone in the world can, can <laughs> access that community? It is now, <laughs> we, you know, for many years, we've been doing mentorship trainings and we've taught at, you know, at Esalen and in Europe and all we've traveled all over teaching students and teaching just folks who are interested in healing, um, who are interested in this work. Um, and I've taught it workshops in many retreat centers and I love in-person work. I mean, I love body to body, you know, right in there with our field of connection. I love that. And I, for many years, I was like, you can't do alchemy online. You, you can't, but we were already beginning to play with that before the pandemic. And, and my husband, Benjamin, who co-wrote the book with me is, as you mentioned, a community, he loves organizing community. It's his passion, it's his creativity. And, you know, since we had people in Europe and in Israel and Australia and Canada and all over wanting to be part of the work, he was like, we have to find a way to do this virtually now. It's part of the global shift. So we were already creating that community, uh, a new possibility. And, um, when when the pandemic hit, we were already, it was already underway. And then of course, it just was, it was kind of like one of those synchronicities, like, wow, thank goodness we have this. So it is virtual and it will continue to be virtual even after we can reconvene as bodies together in, in the third dimension. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we'll still have that virtual community. So yes, anyone from anywhere is welcome. Even extraterrestrials at this point. <laughs> we need all the help we can get, right? <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> you write this beautiful 
story of the Selkie. So I've read the story of the Selkie for years since I was a little girl. And I've, every time I read the story of this woman who has her skin taken from her and, you know, she's with her husband and she has this boy and, and she has to get her skin back and go back to the ocean where she belongs. For years, I saw it as a Celtic story to teach us about death and loss. But every time I reread the story, I see it in, in a new light. And in your book, I saw it in yet another new light as a metaphor for the soul and reclaiming our soul. And I was just wondering if you could tell listeners how you see the myth of the Selkie story mm -hmm. in terms of inner alchemy. It's also one of my favorite stories. Yeah. Um, so for me, this story of the, the seal woman from the depths, and of course the story comes from, it's told in many of the Northern countries in various forms, but primarily it is seen as a, a Celtic story um, of, and the depths, of course, symbolically um, within the domain of archetypes and symbols, one of the meanings of the sea and the deep oceans is that domain of the unconscious, of dreams and of, you know, body knowings, where the soul loves to swim. So the seal skin of this, the Selkie, for me is kind of this subtle body that, that we all have, like we have this subtle body. And I talk about that in another part of the book that's a kind of woven skin and it's woven of our imagination and of starlight and of you know the ocean currents and all kinds of threads from, from the earth that each of us have this kind of soul skin. And you can't, you can't actually dissect it, you know, when you, you can't take it apart and measure it. And yet on a feeling level, you know, you know, it's there and you know, when you're in touch with it. And the idea for me of this story is that when the fisherman fell in love with the Selkie, in a way, he saw the shining of her soul skin and he wanted to um, take ownership of it in a way. And her time on land, you know, as his wife and as the mother of, of their child, it's not that that was a, a bad thing. It was part of her story. But as the story says, too much time on dry land was beginning to, to she was beginning to fade away, to die. And I think that that is what I see in our culture and the culture of the modern West of dualism, of materialism is too much time on dry land. It's not that the dry land doesn't have a purpose. I mean, she was very, she loved her husband. She loved her child, but she also needed those dives down into the depths of her soul. And I, I, believe that's what human beings are calling out for now is this diving back and so ultimately of course as you know the story she had to she had to find the skin that her husband had hidden away 
um, and put it back on and go back down to the sea. I think that it doesn't, or at least I've always hoped when I read that story, like if he could just have compromised and shared her skin, she could have lived in both worlds. Yes. And I feel like reading your book, it's almost like teaching us how to live in both worlds. Yes, that's beautiful. It's not that what we have created through very hard work, you know, to have a critical mind, to be able to hone our capacities for evaluation and coming up with a point of view. I mean, mental consciousness and the ego, really, it's a very recent development for human beings. And it's not something we necessarily want to discard at all. But I love what you're saying that mental consciousness needs to compromise a little bit. <laughs> That's really good. You know, that, that there needs to be a, a, a reevaluation of the importance of the mythical and the dreamlike and that's why we very much see alchemy. It's not like we're going backwards to, you know, a time before our critical minds or rational thought. It's not like, oh, that's where we want to go and leave this behind, but rather that bringing forward our capacity for myth-making, for imagining, for magic, for feeling and soul, ex- valuing soul experience can can actually support a movement forward in a a kind of um, building upon or going beyond the limitations of the mental, but not leaving it behind. And so I really love your, that idea of, yeah, like mental rational consciousness, if it could only compromise a little bit. It you know, and not marginalize better. and disca- discard. Yes. Right. I mean, when you were talking about the soul, there was that Victorian doctor who tried to measure the weight of the soul. Yeah. I feel like scientists are trying so hard to help us in- improve things, which is wonderful. And I think the work they have done is and is continuing to do is phenomenal. But I'm just hoping they can become more like, say, Dr. Dean Radin, you know, who's, I think he is and his work or Rupert Sheldrake, they're able to have that compromise and show that, yes, you can have science improve these things, but you can also have this whole quantum world of yeah. celestial space that you're talking about above and below. And and included in that can be the imagination and this inner alchemy. And I don't know why so many are afraid of that. Yeah. I think that's a really good question. I mean, it is why, you know, I include right at the beginning these wonderful conversations I have had and will continue to have with my friend who's a you know, really devoted family doctor and, you know, she's a real great science head and very, but yet she's so interested in energy movement and how we work with Qigong and how we can begin to have a different kind of imaginal connection to other parts of our being. And she herself said, you know, it's not, I don't have the time in a day to help my patients rediscover, you know, a connection to self and meaning and purpose. I just don't have time in my day. I'm not trained for it. 
but that alone would heal so many of the chronic illnesses that doctors see. I mean, whether it's addiction or people eating food that's just not supporting their bodies because they don't have any way to listen to their body's messages. So beginning to develop these kinds of skills would actually, you know, I feel it would be a great boon to public health. I agree. And throughout your book and throughout your work, because this is just an amazing, amazing depth to, to all of this, but you integrate that we're all connecting with those Jungian archetypes that we're, we can relate to those. And that gives us that connection to each other, but our own inner knowing and light as well. But also there are so many tools and rituals and practices. Is there Anything, I mean, the pause was a wonderful, wonderful example, but you mentioned uh, like basic, what would you consider the most basic of the alchemical healing protocols that people could really integrate into their lives during this transition and shift Mm. that we're all in? Great. Yes. Well, along with our belief that our dreams and our body sensations And these archetypes, these primordial images that we can all relate to, whether it's water, fire, earth, that these are all our birthright as humans. It's part of our humanity. It's not like, you know, I really stand for indigenous medicines and indigenous psychology. It wasn't that it belongs to only an elite class. I mean, there are, of course, people who study for years and years and years who can be guides and who can carry some of the work, but it's, this is free medicine for all of us. Mm -hmm. Our dreams are free medicine. We get them every night. And also, so are the acupuncture points. I mean, to become an acupuncturist is a lot of, a lot of study, hard, hard work, certification, all of that. And of course there's nothing to, replace that. But at the same time, anyone, any human being can touch a point on their own body and begin to activate the movement of chi, the life force. So in the book, we give a few, what I call like a point palette, a very basic point palette, and kind of how those points live in our bodies where they are. And we invite people to begin applying essential oils. We give essential oils. We give flower essences to actually activate the movement of the soul in our own bodies or in um, bodies of our children, our friends, our partners. Um, And that doesn't mean you're becoming an acupuncturist. You know, it doesn't mean that this is going to be something that you, that there's an exchange of money around, but that it is a freely given healing gift that we all have. So I would say, um, in addition to the pause, another, um, we give little protocols in the book with three points that people can use with oils and flower essences for hope and vision, for shock, um, for exhaustion, things I think that people, everyone's feeling now at one time or another, but even simpler than that, there's a point 
and listeners right now can find it right at the center of the palm. It's kind of between the second and third finger and you can locate it. If you you run your forefinger lightly across the opposite palm, you're gonna fall right into a little dip at the center. You know, uh, interestingly, it is the crucifixion point, you could say, it's right at the center of the palm on the crease that's closer to the wrist. And if you find that point, it has, you feel a little zing there. That might take time. If you don't feel the zing, just pretend you feel the zing. But you, oh no, I'm feeling the zing. <laughs> you feel the zing. <laughs> and you know there is that dip. Your finger is going to fall right into the point. That is that's an acupuncture point. And um, and the point has a name, and it's it, it it's called the Palace of Weariness. Oh. Every acupuncture point has. Um, a, a, an amazing name. And that's what I talk about in my book, Higo, uh, the spirit of the points. But here, the palace of weariness, um, it is what I call the point of where we go to recover, to convalesce, to, to rest. So the point is on a meridian called the pericardium or heart protector meridian. So this point activates the protection of your heart. So that's really fascinating because when I got the zing, I felt that radiate out from my heart chakra. Yes. Very cool stuff. Wow. It wow. goes direct. And of course, there's no, there's, there's no accidents why that is a central point in Christian mythology in the myth of Christ, you know, that, that we, are, we are opening our hearts here in this transformation, we are going through a massive opening or, you know, invitation to open the heart chakra, to see from many points of view, not to get stuck in our own rigid mental position, but to open bigger to the points of view of others, but also the rivers, the oceans, the earth, the stars. So, but in that opening of the heart chakra, we also need protection. And, you know, not to mention being bombarded constantly by fear, foreboding, warnings that are triggering, you know, our emotional immune system. How do we, how do we open ourselves to the world and yet be protected? And that's the gift of the pericardium meridian, the heart protector. It's actually a channel in Chinese medicine, and this point is a master point. So in addition to, your, to the pause practice, working with this pericardium aid, that's the number on the, on the line in a palace of weariness. And you can put a drop of, I like to use rose essential oil on that point. I like to use people all, many people are familiar with the Bach flower rescue remedy. Um, when you're upset, when you hear something disturbing, or you're just exhausted, Rescue Remedy is, um, it's a flower essence, and it's made of um, five different flowers, um, just their, their kind of energetic 
vibration is in that remedy. It's kind of like a homeopathic remedy. It's You can get it at most health food stores. You can order it online. Bachflower Rescue Remedy and a few drops of that on this point will calm the heart. Will calm your, you know, overly vibrational energy field. It's just like, ha. Ah. So that's another... I think really helpful practice for this time. That's fantastic. Thank you. And it works. I, when my, uh, my former husband was a police officer and he was injured in the line of duty and I was at the hospital that night with a sea of police officers and <laughs> politicians and everyone. And my friend came running through the crowd pushing her way through these navy blue uniforms. And she passes me this little vial. And I was like, oh my God, is she bringing me drugs? And I looked at her, <laughs> I didn't know what she was doing. She was so secretive. And uh, I look at it and it's it's box, um, the, the wow. rescue remedy. Rescue she remedy. Goes, you need this, put <gasps> it on your pulse points. And then she just took off through the crowd and left. <laughs> but I right, swear, and it's, it's it like a, immediate. It is. I mean, we use it, you know, you can use it on animals. Sometimes I even use it when I'm transplanting seedlings. <laughs> I give them like, put a little tiny drop in the water, you know. Oh, that's it, a good idea. Yeah, it, it's an amazing shock remedy. Well, and, I just want to say, um, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, just that we're having readers now tell us that they're using these protocols and having like, it's so fun. It's Benjamin and I just love it when we hear from readers saying, you know, I'm using points because it's, this is our, it's kind of like, okay, here's the user manual for your subtle body. And you, it's, you have ownership of that body. You have agency. And I, I, that, there's nothing that makes me happier than that. I agree. And, the, and like you said, the tools are there and they're in this book. You know, growing up, I was fascinated with alchemist and witches and magic. And a part of me still hopes Nicholas Flamel is wandering the streets of Paris with his wife happily, but that's another show. And I remember as I got into high school and college and really started studying this, I realized, oh, it this isn't magic. This is power of thought. Yeah. And I, I was kind of disappointed for several years. And then I started thinking, Oh, no, no, that is the true magic. This is the true power. When we realize that our soul, our higher self, our thoughts have the power to manifest our reality, what could be more magical than that? And I feel like your book is almost like a spell book. <laughs> <laughs> I mean that with all respect because this book is... Yeah, no, I love what you're saying. But it's, it's And like, I really agree. It's giving me the instructions and the how-tos and, you know, so many books I read, they talk, it's like they talk in circles around the main point, whereas this book you get, it's, it's a labyrinth. We go around into the center of the core of the work, you go back out to remind us of the major points, but then you circle right back in with practical, hands-on exercises, tips, things we can do right now. And I think that's really what people need. Yeah, I agree. And I and I love 
your process, and I really resonate with it too. I was a great fan. I remember reading The Witch of Blackbird Pond when I was like in sixth grade and just knowing that I had some kind of other life, you know, as, as that woman at the edge, you know, and, um, but, but I too have come to see, I think a great alchemical principle is that, and this is in European, Vedic, Taoist, they all say the same thing. The appropriate use of the will and the mind is to create the conditions where the miracle can happen. But we don't, we are not in charge of these miracles or the magic. The magic is, is, you know, that comes from somewhere else, like the greater Tao of the world or the cosmos. But our task as alchemists is to, with great devotion and practice, keep creating the conditions. And it's not for me that we, make the outer world change that way you know like it's a done deal I shift my mind and suddenly you know we have peace on earth if only it were true or I change my mind that I'm 100% healthy but it's rather that through this work and through this practice and through this devotion you kind of put your finger you tip the scales you know of the cosmos in the direction of healing transformation in the direction of a, of a moving lead to goal. You know, we, that's what we can do is we just keep tipping the scales in that direction. And that to me is magic. <laughs> I agree. And if the hundredth monkey exercise is true, as we know it is, the more of us that turn our inner light on, the more this is going to spread throughout the whole collective conscious. And that's, that's also really magic absolutely that's as we said earlier you know just connecting with you both it's just i feel this glow i really do i feel like this is this is what we're up to is these connections and the building this i see it almost like as a mycelium web of a new consciousness for the planet so we do indeed need each other in this work yes and the planet needs us. That's the other thing. It's very clear to me. Me too. That is true. Yeah. I'm just so grateful that you've come on, Lori, because it's. I think you, what you've shared with, with Samantha and I and also with our community of listeners is so vitally important right now. And, and we appreciate you and your work so very much and, and also... Uh, your husband's contribution as well. Thank you very, very much for sharing this with us. Well, thank you. It's been just wonderful to talk to you both. And I know we'll stay in touch. I'll really, really have appreciated the conversation. And I feel a real kinship in our, in our projects here. Oh, I do too. Thank you again for inviting me. Our thank yous. And everyone, if you want to connect with Lori, please, please visit anewpossibility.com and check out the Inner Healing Circle. Uh, but definitely start with her book because, or her and her husband's book because it is life-changing. Thank you guys so much for joining us. We hope you have a wonderful week. Please remember, as always, to show up, do great work, and share your light. Take care.